Hello, I'm Doug Hadaway. You're listening to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. When the Gallup organization first surveyed Americans about allowing same-sex couples to marry in the United States, only 27% of the public supported legal recognition of those marriages. In the first decade of the 2000s, the marriage equality movement lost ballot referendums in 30 states. Fast forward to 2018, when a Gallup survey on the topic reported that 67% of Americans supported marriage equality. Public support first reached 60% in 2015 and has not fallen below that level since. A cause that was declared hopeless has become the new normal. Social scientists call it durable attitude change. Evan Wolfson, founder of Freedom to Marry, has been called the architect of the marriage equality movement. On this episode of Achieve Great Things, we talk with Evan about how the movement achieved this amazing feat. And we'll walk through six steps you can take to change hearts and minds for good. Evan, you envisioned all of this back in the 1980s when you were in law school. Tell us that story. So I was a student at Harvard, and as part of the graduation, you have to write a third-year paper, a thesis on something. By that point, I was far enough along in my own personal journey as a gay person that I knew I wanted to write about how we could make the world better for gay people. And I had had two previous formative experiences that I think really led me to the topic. In the interest of time, I'll just say very quickly, I started in the Peace Corps. In the Peace Corps, I came to the epiphany for me that who you are is profoundly affected by the choices that your society gives you, even your language. And I also had read, while in law school, a groundbreaking book on history, my great passion, that had come out recently, which was called Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality by John Boswell, in which he traced the first 4,000 years of Western Hmm. civilization and showed that the way in which gay people had been treated, contrary to the way we thought about it, had varied widely uh, from century to century, society to society, and so on. And the lesson I took from that as as a young reader was, if things had once been different, they could be different again. So now when I came time to write my paper, I asked myself the question, what is at the heart of anti-gay oppression, anti-gay discrimination in our society? And I decided that the reason we were discriminated against is because of who we love. And so then I asked myself, well, what is the central structure, the central language of love? Marriage. And so I argued that by claiming this structure, by claiming this language of marriage, we could be seizing an engine of transformation that would change how non-gay people saw who gay people and eventually trans people are, and that would help us win not only marriage, but advance on every front. That was a rather ambitious vision. (laughs) Uh, Well, I didn't know that at the time as as a student I was writing, but it was actually a very sweeping paper that Mm. that sprawled across philosophy and the history of the ancient world and the history of our current context and feminism and popular culture. Tootsie figured prominently in it at the time I was writing in 1983. And uh, a very little bit of law at the end, tracing how we could turn all of this engagement Mm -hmm. with values and society and the way to think about things and turn that into a legal pathway. And that's probably why the paper only got a B. But uh, (laughs) fortunately, I made up for it later with extracurricular activities. But I I was writing about how we should fight for marriage because marriage was important, 
but we also should fight for marriage because marriage was not just a goal, it was a strategy. It was a way we were going to be able to be able to change hearts and minds and thereby the law. And in this conversation, we are going to focus on changing hearts and minds through communication, through the communication strategy, the messaging and so forth. Sure. But your larger strategy is bigger than that, of course. Absolutely. Uh, you and I have talked about this many times. In, in my view, message persuasion, while obviously of enormous importance, sometimes central importance, is still really a tactic. It's not a strategy. Messaging, which, by which I mean not only the words, but also the, the message delivery, the deployment, the messengers, and so on. Messaging is a, is a tactic that should serve a strategy to a goal. And there were many tactics that we had to employ, including you know classic ones like lobbying and uh, electoral work and fundraising and political organizing and organizational organizing and so on in order to achieve our ability to move the country. But persuasion and messaging were central parts of the strategy. And on that, and that's obviously the tactic to help you build public support, which helps build political will, etc. Changes norms. A lot comes from that that we've seen. I was reflecting back and often talk about how when Gallup first surveyed on this, um, we were at 27% support. And I had a pollster here in Washington tell me, you're never going to see, quote, gay marriage in your lifetime. And you had a lot of political pollsters and consultants telling you this was a lost cause. Why were they so skeptical? Well, they were skeptical because that was we were at a very low number, as you uh, rightly noted, and we were a small minority under siege. We had been in some ways losing ground from the 70s when we really began building in earnest a movement and making political and cultural gains and then were hit with the double whammy of an extraordinarily hostile uh, political administration mm. coupled to in an unholy alliance with a resurgent religious right and extremism who were very strongly anti-gay combined with, of course, the cataclysm of HIV. And uh, these powerful forces against us were putting us in a very, very difficult place. On top of that, the gay couple, on top of that, same-sex couples had already gone to court and mm. sought the freedom to marry. We usually talk somewhat artificially about Stonewall as the beginning of the modern gay rights movement 50 years ago this year. Within the immediate aftermath of Stonewall, within just a few years, there were cases all across the country brought by couples seeking the freedom to marry, all of which had lost, one of which had reached the Supreme Court, which had also, like all the other courts, said no. So this first wave of marriage litigation in the early 70s had failed. And so when people are looking in the 80s, in the midst of HIV and the political assaults and the religious right and the attacks and the stigma and the discrimination, the idea that we were going to be able to turn all that around and win what many people thought was going to be the crown jewel, the ultimate, the last thing mm. we would achieve if we achieved it at all, most people dismissed as crazy, dangerous, and at best premature. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because like now, a lot of people, one of the reasons, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is what can we share with others who feel like they're in that situation right now? That's exactly right. right. And, and I think it's really important, and I know you believe this also, that people not take the bad we're in at the moment as being the best we can do. We, we can turn things. We can change things. And history tells us that. Um, what kept you going despite 
all the odds? I was lucky. I always believed we would win. I just, uh, whether through luck of temperament or extraordinary ability to compartmentalize or <laughs> uh, a bit of determination and even spite that I'm going to show them, I, I always believed we would win. I always believed that our case was right and that we could persuade not everybody, but enough. And that's one of my rules of activism. You don't need every, you need enough. I believe that most people are fair. Most people are reachable. And I believe that if we came out and shared our stories and connected with people on a values level and made the case, not just literally the legal case, but the, the true moral and emotional and personal case with people that we could change this. We've never talked about this, but same here. I always believed we could do it. Mm. And that is some interesting insights from psychology around movement building and uh, motivating people for anything is that they have to believe it's possible. Absolutely. When, when I'm asked to sum up how we won, say, in three words, the three words I give people are hope, clarity, and tenacity. Mm. Tenacity because change takes a long time and there are many ups and downs and many twists and turns and it's not easy. Clarity, because I believe your work is much more effective when you have clarity of goal, clarity of strategy, what I call the ladder of clarity, and I could keep going. But it begins with hope. You have to believe you can win. You have to believe you can make this change. You have to believe that others can rise to fairness. And not only do you have to have that belief, as a good leader, as a good activist, you have to convey that belief. Because it's by conveying that belief that you inspire people to join you, which is almost always a necessary condition of winning. Instead of making a bad thing worse and giving people permission for inaction through despair and cynicism, you have to inspire people to take action through hope. Mm. Um, let's talk about the social science. Um, I shared an article with you I wrote uh, where I suggest six steps um, looking back at what the movement accomplished, six steps for achieving what has been called in the literature's uh, durable attitude change, a shift in attitudes. People went from, no, I'm against that, to yes, I'm for it, um, in a way that persists over time and is resistant to counterattack, to quote the, the literature I read about it. So I'd love to go through those six and get your, get your input on those. Um, the first, as I said, durable attitude change is defined as a shift that persists. And Gallup's polls, which I mentioned before, showed that we broke 60% uh, support among the U.S. general population in 2015, and we haven't come below that number since. Um, do you see other indicators besides you know, Gallup polling that we've achieved a durable sort of victory here when it comes to public opinion? Oh, sure. I mean, it's not just, uh, first of all, the Gallup poll, as you know, it's pretty much every poll. Every poll is showing not only the uh, deepening of support, but also the broadening of support. We have now continued to make progress since the win uh, in the demographics that were the hardest and most resistant for us. We, we now, for the first time, have cracked majority support amongst people over 65. Mm. We have majority support amongst Republicans under 50. We have majority support in all but six states. We have majority support in all four quadrants of the country, and I, I could go on and on. So you have that kind of indicator of public support, but you also just have it in the experience and the and the the vibe that's out there. And you know, one example, rather topical, is we now have a presidential candidate who's running as an openly gay man, and not just an openly gay man, but an openly gay man married to an even more openly gay man. Uh, and the fact that he's gay and the fact that they're married, far from being any kind of negative, is 
almost certainly a positive for mm-hmm. them. It is definitely not the criterion that is the most audacious or the most challenging for him. When just a you know a heartbeat ago, it might have been a, just a non-starter, a complete barrier. So we can point to all kinds of examples like that, including the fact that there now have been uh, you know there are now more than a million people in the United States who are gay people, same-sex couples, married. There are, therefore, you know, tens of millions of people who've danced at their weddings, who've sent them right. the wedding gifts, who've embraced them, who love them. And this is just part of the fabric of life. Now, it's not to say that we've won everybody. It's not to say there aren't pockets of resistance. It's not to say the work is done. Far from it. But we have achieved that, as you said, durable change. And not only is it change on the freedom to marry, but as I had surmised decades ago, it is an engine of continuing change. Mm-hmm. The marriage conversation and all that comes with it continues to be an engine of advancement that we are now able to harness to other work, whether it's on trans rights or the protection of gay youth or the acknowledgement of trans youth or even the protection increasingly important of gay seniors. Mm. Indicating yourself. <laughs> Let the record note he said. Oh, yeah. he I pointed to me, not you. <laughs> <laughs> um so with a caveat that there's no one way to do an undertaking like mm-hmm. this. There's a lot of complexities. There's no silver bullets. But I was able to take some time out from the, uh, the rat race that is my life with support from the Rockefeller Foundation to reflect back, look at the social science, and came up with, I said, um, this sort of list of elements of achieving durable attitude change. So I want to get your thoughts on these. Um, And the first is to focus your efforts on people who are ambivalent. You called them conflicted voters. How did you define that? Why did you focus on conflicted people? Yeah. Now, I will say prior to the six steps, Mm -hmm. and therefore first, in a sense, (laughs) is to get your own, to get your base. Before you start banging your head on the hardest or even the, the difficult, solidify your own. Now, that doesn't mean everybody. You know, We didn't have to wait for a permission from every last living gay person before we started talking to non-gay people. Often non-gay people brought some of the gay people along, and there's some mm-hmm. of the gay people we never got. So it's not, it's not that you don't start with, right. with people who you need to persuade, but solidify the people who are with you but haven't been asked yet, haven't been mobilized yet. Getting that base, I think, is probably, quote, first. But in terms of what you're talking about, which is the movable middle, reaching the people we need to reach. I absolutely agree with what you're saying, that you focus on people who have, as you wrote, conflicts or competing values, who are ambivalent, precisely because they're not locked in on either side. And those are the people I thought of as the reachable, but not yet reached. And the psychological studies I uh, read said that people who have conflicting feelings or thoughts about an, an important issue like this will feel uncomfortable. It makes them uncomfortable. Psychological pain, it's sometimes called. So they might actually have an incentive to change up the way they are thinking about it and change their worldview. That's true, although they also have an incentive to just shut down and, right. and not engage. So one of the challenges is to, quote, force them, to invite them to wrestle with something that, as you said, they may, in a way, not want to wrestle with, but that once they wrestle with, they can move. Yeah, that's an interesting point. In the literature, it's called they'll either approach the issue and try to wrestle with it or avoid the issue, Mm -hmm. which is a lot easier to do, unless it's coming up every day, Mm -hmm. for example, or you're being called to vote on it. So that was something, a contextual thing, that kind of was in our favor, if you will, like People were having to think about this. Yeah, in, in that respect, the opposition and the, and the battles and sometimes even defeats 
also gave us something to work with because that too prompted people to have to have this conversation, to have to think about it. And as you said, sometimes they had to make a decision. Hmm. So it wasn't only our own work. It wasn't only the personal asking, important as it was. It was also the, the debate out there that created a, an incentive and a space for us to, to move into and to seize what I think of as the chief engine of change, which is conversation, hmm. asking people to engage, to, in Lincoln's words, to think anew. That's an interesting foreshadowing to where this thing goes in terms of changing hearts and minds. But sticking on that issue of conflicted voters, mm -hmm. what were the conflicts that you observed? How were people conflicted over this? Well, in terms of the people we're talking about, the reachable people, not the hardcore opponents yeah. and not the people already with us, uh, I think the real tension that they had was they, they wanted to be fair. They weren't haters. They, 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 in the abstract, didn't think gay people should be punished. And they actually thought gay people should be treated fairly, but they did not understand why gay people should have marriage. And they almost defended against that a little bit because marriage was a, this value-laden idea for them that they didn't associate with gay people. They literally didn't see why gay people wanted marriage because that wasn't their conception of gay. They saw gay as different. So gay people should not be treated badly. Gay people perhaps should all have the quote unquote, benefits of marriage, health coverage, domestic partnership, and so on. But they could not understand the value connection. That was where they had the tension. Mm. Um, step two in this uh, suggested framework is to understand their anxieties. And that does come from uh, understanding from motivational psychology and other areas that when people feel anxious about something, it gets in the way of clear thinking about things, of considering fairness or altruism um, if you don't feel sort of safe and secure. Mm -hmm. And of course, we see that as a dynamic in politics. People are trying to scare people about, you know, gays is evil or, yeah, or immigrants or whatever. exactly. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So you will have people with a political agenda actively trying to stir up fear. Right. So looking at it through the, the lens of anxiety, what kind of anxieties did conflicted voters hold about this? You know, at various points and in various places, people felt anxiety about the direction of the country, about the fraying of the social fabric, about the economy, sometimes about their own marriages, their own family status, their own ability to provide for their family. They felt anxious about uh, tension, just they didn't want the confrontation and the battling. Mm. Uh, they didn't want, um, they didn't want politicians to be distracted let alone who is distracting them or how. So there really were a range, some of which had to do with gay, some of which had to do with marriage, but some of which didn't really have much to do with those things directly, but they could be invoked. Uh, and then, of course, the opposition tried to play on fears. You know, in the beginning, they were able to just say, say gay, and that was the end of the discussion. But, but, they, but they lost that argument as we moved people to a much better place on gay. Then they went with the whole marriage argument. Marriage is under assault. Marriage is under threat. Mm. The so-called Defense of Marriage Act. Right. You know, we're, de we're defending marriage. Gays don't have the right to change marriage for the rest of us was their line. Mm. But, but we, over time, were able to move along and, and get people to 
relax and to embrace our position on that. And so marriage stopped being a trump card, an automatic card for the opposition. So then they moved to all the others, the, the pound the table arguments, the collateral arguments. This will affect what your kids are taught in school. This will affect the priest's ability to say whatever the priest wants to say in the church. This will affect, and they would come up with whatever scare tactic, however attenuated or ludicrous it was, as their last-ditch argument because they had lost the argument on gay and on marriage. Mm. And that that's quite a feat right there, overcoming Absolutely. anxieties now, and fears. Of course, took several decades yes <laughs> and, and many 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 losses mm. but yes we were able to move people on these questions but we still were we still had to deal with these collateral attacks these ability to peel away people who had maybe come to us somewhat fragilely but could be peeled away with a scare tactic or a diversion yep uh, and durable attitude change, the whole idea there is that we're at a place where that's not happening anymore. That's right. And the real challenge for us when you're talking about messaging, which, as you've said, was just really one piece of the work, but an important piece, was we had to be, we had to de- learn how and then develop the resources and then get better at really working on two tracks. We had to find a way to have the messaging capacity, arguments as well as messengers, as well as funding, etc., to refute the attacks, the specific attacks that came our way. This is going to affect your kids in school. This is going to lead to whatever horror show you want to pick, da-da-da. We had to be able to deal with that, but at the same time, we had to sustain the even more important first track, which was our core message, our core engagement, which was what was moving people to our sides, the connection on values that worked for us. And the more solidly we could bring people over with the core, the less we had to worry about the diversions, the more quickly we could pivot away from those diversions back to the core of what this really was about. And it was that core that really won people over with the footnote that different people are moved by different things. The Mm -hmm. the core of what it might be was different for, let's say what it took to get us to a majority versus the core of what was needed to get the next five to 15 percent to solidify and grow that majority with those reachable people. What they needed here was not necessarily the exact same thing as what might have moved the majority to our side in the first place. You know, we went from that 27 percent in 1996 when with my co-counsel, I I won the world's first ever case on the freedom to marry, uh, the first ever victory in Hawaii. It took us many years to get to a majority, although in historical time, not a lot of years. But in our day-to-day lifetime, in our social life, it was a lot of time. But we got to that fragile majority by around around 2000, give Mm -hmm. or take, Um, maybe even a little later. Um, To get, though, a solid enough majority that it couldn't be peeled away, that it couldn't be eroded, that people couldn't be scared off, meant that we had to solidify our work with that, those gr- that group of people, not the people who were already solidly with us, right. but the people who were now newly or l- limitedly or tentatively with us. Mm-hmm. And that took a specific set of messaging and engagement to, to solidify over the next few years. That's a good segue. And I'm sorry, I, said, I made a mistake. I said we hit a majority in 2000. That's not, I meant 2010. 2010, yep. Yeah. Um, we were worked together to help publicize that fact and change the political conversation. And in part because letting people know that things were better than people might have thought was a way of giving people permission to rise, permission to be better. Absolutely. That was also part of your legal strategy, as I recall. You wanted the 
the audience of a few Supreme Court justices to hear that the country absolutely was ready for this. That that combination of reassurance on the one hand and urgency on the other, that mm. they still needed to act. We still needed them to finish the job. Mm. Um, step three in this framework uh, is to connect the cause to people's authentic aspirations. And, and you mentioned the word values, and these are closely related. Our aspirations are our ideas about the kind of people we want to be and the kind of life we want to live. Um, what were the aspirations people held in connection to marriage and talking about these groups that you were talking about, the folks who were sort of tentatively with us or just getting there, what was it with them? One of the real light bulb moments that sort of encapsulated the, the shift we made not to get to the majority, which what we were doing had worked, but now to, to increase that majority, to get that sort of next group of the reachable but not yet reached, came when we were doing some focus groups and examining, and we, we had a group of people who were not the hardcore opponents and not the people who were with us, so the reachable middle. And we asked them, in, in essence, two questions. One question was, um, why did you get married? Why is marriage important to you? And the number one answer by far, I think 74%, if I remember correctly, was love. Then we asked them, why do, you, why do gay people want to get married? Why does this matter to gay people? And the number one answer was, I don't know. Mm. Followed by, at 37%, exactly half, well, if I, if I have to guess, maybe it's for, for the health benefits. So that was the indicator. Yep. They didn't understand that human connection, that same desire on the part of gay people for love, for commitment, for family, for the emotional that they associated with marriage. Health benefits, they were willing to give us. That led them to domestic partnership. But yep. they didn't understand why marriage. So that encouraged us to really crack the code on doubling down on the set of authentic messages related to love and commitment and family and connection, these personal aspirations that we shared with them. And as we did better, not only at delivering that message, but at getting out of our own way by not always adding in all the other messages that were also equally valid and that had built to a majority, mm -hmm. but were no longer what these people needed to hear. We, we did a much better job of getting a drumbeat of attention and discussion around personal stories, personal engagement, and the values of love, commitment, family. And we did find with one group of people also the value of freedom as in freedom to marry, worked, particularly with more conservative, somewhat older, more Republican, that we needed a slice of as well. So that was another uh, message that we continue moving forward on. But as we really focused on talking in the language of love and commitment and family, it's not that everything else didn't work. It's that this was what was needed to reach the people we now needed to reach to seal the deal and to get that majority up from the 50s into the 60s. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned language, step four. Frame the issue with what I call winning words. What are the, the few words, the thing you say first? What we know from cognitive science and people use the word framing a lot. Um, I boil it down to a simple statement of the first thing you say um, shapes every perception and judgment that follows. So you have to be super strategic how you frame things, what you say first and most often. And you just said love, commitment, family. Were those the winning words? Absolutely. Those were, yeah, those were the winning words. And then we could say things like gay people want to marry for the same mix of reasons as non-gay people. But if you just say it, if you're just telling them, that's not as effective as you know as showing them. So by showing 
whether through the use of words like love and commitment or by portrayals of that love, by evocations of that love, showing same-sex couples surrounded by their family members, perhaps with the non-gay family members doing the bulk of the talking so that they were validating and connecting with the people we were trying to reach, uh, but the gay people were present and were seen to be part of the family, not some isolated atomistic others, but part of these Mm -hmm. values of love, commitment, and and family. That was the way in which we were able to really uh, close the deal with the additional people we needed in order to have the political and public opinion climate that allowed us to get the legal victory. That's interesting talking about family because you mentioned freedom was a word that's like that's Republicans. They're the freedom party. Yeah. Well, they they tried to own the values of family. People who opposed marriage equality tried to own the own quote family values. And we were getting right at the heart of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I never thought we should let the other side claim family values, particularly when they were so anti-family right. and didn't value our families. And I never thought we should give up the word freedom either. You know, freedom is a bedrock American value. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, a liberal or conservative, if you can frame what you're talking about in the language of freedom, you pick up a lot of people. And, you know, of course, it has to be authentic. But I truly believed it was authentic in our case. Yeah, absolutely. Freedom to Marry was the name of your that organization. That was the name of it. Exactly yep. right. And I do remember in Massachusetts, where I lived at the time, first state where we were able to marry legally and had a campaign to preserve that right. And the at the time, people in the LGBT movement, uh, operatives and strategists, wouldn't like, for example, want to talk about parents, you know, gay and lesbian parents of children, for example, and because they were afraid of the fears of stereotypes of gays and kids. That's right. When in fact, what we found was, again, showing the family, people could relate to a family. Absolutely. um, In lots of configurations, people know families come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Yeah. Part of what was interesting historically was the freedom to marry fight, the effort to work, to win marriage, the marriage as a strategy effort really brought out of the shadows and actually brought into greater numbers people like you, uh, people who were raising kids, gay, gay parents, and the, and the children being raised by gay parents. And as more of you became visible and added your stories and your voices to the mix, that actually created more momentum for the freedom to marry. It actually moved people who had previously not moved with us because they now had to deal with a human reality, not just an ideological construct. It was very similar to what was also, in my mind, the strategy behind one of the other cases I worked on with the Boy Scouts case, where you know I litigated on behalf of James Dale all the way up to the Supreme Court. And to me, that case was important, not just because James was great and, and should be able to serve in the Boy Scouts and the Boy Scouts should not be discriminating, but because what it did was show the American people that there is such a thing as gay youth. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that gay people are also young people... Yep. They're no longer, again, these others, these aliens, these ideological imagined things that are dropping from the sky. They're part of your family. They're part of families you know. They are kids as well as people who grow up. And that just changes your whole understanding of what you're talking about. Absolutely. And you had mentioned um, step five. You're like the king of the segues here. Strategic stories is what I call them. Showing, not just telling. Right. And story, as we know, is the way people understand almost everything. Um, So how did storytelling figure into the into your campaign? Well, 
I guess a lot of this sounds familiar, or I'm jumping ahead well because I learned a lot from you over the years. <laughs> so we've always been on kind of a good wavelength together on this. But people people relate to stories. Storytelling is a is like a almost a defining human thing going back to aboriginal times and sitting around the, the campfire. People are moved by stories. People are moved on a journey uh, by a story. And if the story is personal and real and authentic and emotional, then it all the, all the more effective. And so getting people, whether gay people, we, to tell our own stories, to engage with the people around us through this chief engine of change conversation, or getting non-gay people to tell their stories. Why does this matter to them? Why is it important? Whom do they know? And sometimes speaking for gay people who either couldn't or wouldn't speak for themselves, or speaking to people, other non-gay people, who could connect better to the non-gay person's journey, the non-gay person's story of, of, of new understanding or changed hearts and minds. That was obviously a very important part of the persuasion. Mm -hmm. um, another great segue, last step, and a critical one, um, and you use the word journey, and uh, that was a big part of Freedom to Marry's strategy. From the science, it says, a critical step for achieving durable attitude change, I went from no to yes, and you're not going to talk me out of it, is to help people think it through and be their best selves, which had two levels there. One, literally thinking it through, not just pushing emotional buttons. Right. Um, and living up to their own aspirations for the kind of person they want to be. So we're getting beyond empathy for the same-sex couple that wants to get married, but who am I? And I know you had a lot to say about this uh, when we've talked about this before and had uh, tactics that you used to help people on this journey. Uh, how did Freedom to Marry do that? How did Freedom to Marry help people think it through and come to that conclusion? Well, we really, first of all, we tried to be very aspirational. This was about shared values, shared vision. We as Americans, we as people, we as family members, not us versus them. It wasn't gay marriage. It was marriage. Uh, we wanted to be hopeful. We wanted to approach people with the tone of, I know you're a good person. I know you want to do the right thing. I'm going to stay in this conversation with you. I'm not writing you off as a bigot, as a hater, as ignorant. We worked very hard not to push those reachable but not yet reach people into the camp of the opponents. Just because they weren't with us yet didn't mean they were our opposition. Mm. There was a difference. Yep. Now, we had opponents, yes. and we weren't wasting our time on them. We were, however, not pushing people who were not yet with us into that camp. We worked hard to give people permission to change, that it was okay to change. We did that by running ads, showing people talking about their stories, uh, the crusty old grandparents, the patriarchs of family of, you know, 20 kids and grandchildren and so on, who at age 70 uh, despite what they were hearing in their church, believed in their religious values of love and compassion and their family. And that's why they changed. The Marine who uh, fought for freedom and wound up learning that some of the guys he fought alongside were gay and freedom means freedom for everyone. Uh, all these kinds of stories and evocations and examples of people who had changed. When Obama President Obama made his change, you know, for a while he did it with this drumbeat of this message of evolving. And, you know, and we allowed him to talk about evolving. We also pushed him to evolve already. Right. But we allowed that idea that people can change. People need to think it through. People need to have conversations. And when he talked to the American people, he did it on the script that we had recommended because he told the story, not of being a lawyer, getting a law degree, and that's why he's for the freedom to marry, but of a conversation with Malia and Sasha, his, his daughters, right. 
who talked to him about the families they knew from school where kids had gay parents and they didn't think it was fair, the daughter said, that those families should be treated differently than their own family. And the president said, as a dad, as a Christian, I realize if I want to teach my kids values, I have to live up to them. The value of the golden rule, treating others as you want to be treated. The, the value of being compassionate, of listening, of respecting others, of agreeing to disagree, but still letting live and let live. So all of these kinds of things we not only said, but we tried to show, and we tried to role model, and we tried to give people that permission to rise to fairness. And you called those the journey ads where you showed that. And people can go to the freedom org yes. website where everything is archived. Yes, our, our last act was to create this site that gave the lessons and the resources and the examples so that other movements, other causes, other advocates could take what works and apply these elements of success to the many, many ongoing things we all need to be doing to get our country back on track to deal with the attacks and to make a better world. Well, thank you for doing that. Thank you for having this conversation. Thanks for the opportunity to spread the word.